Welcome to the Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that presents the best of Lumpin' Radio each week. This week, we spoke to the head of the Chicago Teachers Union about the push to reopen schools, learned about our city's recycling, and heard new music from an old dear friend of Lumpin' Radio. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, Size Matters, and the Biden Files. It's the Lumpin' Week in Review for March 5th, 2021. Mario Smith spoke to Jesse Sharkey about the CTU's battle with CPS over reopening schools safely. Sharkey spoke frankly about Mayor Lori Lightfoot, what has been missed in the debate over safe reopening, and what is next for our unions in America. It's a must-hear interview, and it's on News from the Service Entrance, airing every Thursday at 2 p.m. It's been a year in Chicago. Anguished protests over long-standing civil rights issues consumed the city. Looting and mayhem hit the mag mile. And, of course, there's the pandemic. Businesses have gone under, parks and the lakefront have remained closed, and kids have been out of the classroom since last March. Recently, the Chicago Teachers Union and the Chicago Public School System reached an agreement to start returning some children to in-person learning, an agreement that came after weeks of bitter public wrangling with Mayor Lori Lightfoot and tough discussions about equity, safety, and social justice. Jesse Sharkey is the leader of Chicago's Teachers Union. He spoke to us about what had to happen before teachers would return to the classroom, why teachers unions have had to change the narrative, and how the fight for equity and social justice continues. Jesse, welcome to the show, and thank you for being on. Really appreciate you being here today. Thanks for having me. What do you think the best case scenario is for students um, and the idea of returning back to class? CTU battled against CPS, for lack of a better word. No, that was a battle is a fair word. I, you know, it, maybe it was a war. It was, yeah. it was brutal. It was the craziest uh, negotiation and, you know, it involved uh, hundreds, if not thousands of teachers refusing to go in when they were called back in, teaching from outside their buildings mm-hmm. to, you know, in the snowbanks in the middle of the Chicago winter to dramatize, you know, the problems with CPS's plan. The problem with the way the district handled returning is that it was it was a political goal that was driven by their desire to say we're opening the economy. It was not centered in a listening, respectful conversation with parents and teachers and other people who are closest to the issue about what do we need to do to give services that are necessary to be able to support and give help to the people who need the help the most. That would have been a very different kind of conversation. Numbers for COVID seem to be decreasing in the city. There's this move nationally to reopen these schools by by May of this year. It seems to me when you have a population as large as Chicago's and you have a segment of that population that is refusing to take the vaccine when it is available to them, how do you justify the city requesting that schools are reopened when you still have a high risk of COVID-19 in some of these communities, particularly black and brown communities? I don't think there's a good justification. You know, they were fighting to open schools um, back in early January when um, the rates were still significantly higher. We waged a, a long-standing campaign against that, you know, with mass refusals. And we, you know, district to a whole series of lines in the sand and said, we're going to start locking people out of their own classrooms and cutting people off pay. And there was you know, I think we over 50 people got disciplined, you know, threatened with firing for you know, trying to talk to parents about what was unsafe about the situation. You know, it was, it was a big fight. It consumed the public attention in the entire city for um, you know, over a month. You know, I don't think there was a good ped- pedagogical justification for that. Yeah. Uh, I, I really don't. Um, and the, the proof of that is something that you implied, which is in Chicago, 70 percent of 
parents in the city overall chose to stay remote. And the numbers are higher than that, you know, north of 80% among Black, Black and Latinx parents. To me, that was, that was like, telling us something about about who the people who like were most directly affected by these decisions, what the, those folks were feeling. Um, you know, they, they put us, they, they drove us to a point where it was either, um, you know, going along open-ended strike to keep schools closed, um, which, you know, which would have been a really hard strike. In terms of the broader question about the buildings, this is the big if. If the virus stays relatively low in terms of how much transmission there is, I think we I think we know and we have some ideas about what needs to happen in our buildings mm-hmm. in order in order to keep them relatively safe. Perfectly safe? No, it's it's a pandemic, but certainly safer. Um, mandatory masks, uh, ventilation in our rooms, uh, social distancing, uh, health screening protocols. There's a 50, half of staff and, and and a quarter of students in our highest in our high transmission neighborhoods are all being tested. Cleaning and disinfecting protocols. So you know what we're doing in Chicago. Each school has a safety committee, which is a rank and file uh, u- union led committee. Um, but the principal and the building engineer have to be on it, it, which is charged with actually making sure the standards which got negotiated during that big fight are being lived up to in reality in the building. Because left to their own devices, we don't trust them to do that. You know, and then of course, all based on whether the transmission levels stay low. Because if they go higher, then then the whole I think the deal needs to be off. How much damage do you think has been done by not having that particular demographic of students in a school? Well, it's it's a great question. You know, high school are some of the kids that are both the best able to handle the the challenges of the pandemic most independent group of kids that understand the online medium very well, have high, high level reading and analysis, you know, I think are very able to work in a remote setting. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, it's a group of kids in terms of their developmental stage, where they're, where they're most attuned to social pressures and social groupings. You know, there's a whole lot of things that school provides that aren't necessarily, that don't have to do with academics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think for the students that are, that are, they're really key off those areas, it's been really hard. And I think that one of the things that we have lacked in terms of the way as a society we've approached or, or dealt with pandemic schooling is taking a proper account of which students are succeeding and which students are, are, are not getting success at all, are really being harmed by this way of doing school that we're doing. Uh, I think if you, if you took that inventory, what it would show you is that you know a lot of our socially most vulnerable students those families are, are suffering the most, you know, I don't necessarily think that the push to get everyone back in buildings as soon as possible is actually the right question. You know, why not actually take an inventory and say, okay, there's going to be a group of high school students, not all of them, but a group of them who, who we needed to get back in touch with, uh, you know, and get some face-to-face time with sooner. And I kind of feel like that's, you know, in a way we should have been doing that months ago. CTU is a social justice union. We don't we don't shy away from that. We say it proudly. Um, we think that the proper concerns of people who are who are unionists, who are working class activists, shouldn't just be. I mean, yes, we're concerned about our contract and narrow terms of our of the terms of our employment, um, but we're also we're also concerned about the broader set of social good issues in, in our in our community whether people have access to decent housing. That has a big impact on what, how students show up in a school building, whether people have access to healthcare, minimum wage. There's a set of, there's a set of issues that our union has taken stands on. We, we speak openly about racial equity and justice. But, you know, it's also that like any union that, you know, she, she says, oh, I've got, you know, there's 42 unions in the city of Chicago and I've got deals with 40 of them. And the only two unions that I can't get deals with are the FOP, 
which by the way is a Trump loving organization here. Right. It's, it's, it's an embarrassment. I don't even think you right, rightfully should call it a union and the CTU. So you kind of like lumps the CTU into this category of uh, the only way to explain their activity is they must be trying to get my job. It's ridiculous. I, yeah. I don't have any interest in running for mayor. It's, it's not what I'm doing. Uh, what I hope is that not just in the narrow issue of school reopening, but more broadly in terms of what happens in our society about the way we're t- attending to the needs of working class people during this pandemic. I hope we see a lot more good trouble. I, I hope we see a lot more people speaking out. I, I hope we see a lot more organizing. Uh, I feel like that needs to happen. And if, if the CTU contributed in some small way to that, I, I, I feel good about that. I do, I do think that's necessary. <laughs> Clem talked with Carter O'Brien, the sustainability officer at the Fuhn Museum's Office of Strategic Science Initiatives. O'Brien talked about Chicago's recycling, how food operations can help fuel composting, community gardening in the city, and the push for renewable energy. Spontaneous Vegetation airs Sundays at 5 p.m. So, Carter, you do all uh, sorts of things, and I have all sorts of questions for you. Um, I would like to start with this idea of what a sustainability officer is and does both um, uh, at the Field Museum, perhaps, and also kind of at large. Sure, sure. Yeah. This And uh, it may not surprise you that this is one of the most frequently asked questions that comes my way, and I don't think I ever provide the same answer twice. <laughs> so, <What's... laughs> in the spirit of spontaneity, uh, what I've been doing this week, for example, is a lot of focus on policies. So we're trying to work on uh, improving the climate, both for uh, recycling and uh, native plants here in the city. I'm also trying to figure out how we can get uh, the ball moving a little bit forward in terms of getting people to adopt uh, things like community solar, but with an eye towards the solar pollinator concept that I believe started in Minnesota, where uh, you're, you're familiar with some of the you know the wide-scale solar development that's happening. It's you know generally just these giant fields of solar panels, and so. A lot of us are, you know, saying like, you know, this is a great opportunity to have also some native plants, you know, ringing these uh, 
these fields for all kinds of different reasons. Um, they actually make the panels more productive by lowering the, the temperature in many cases. And they're also more attractive to the communities where these things are sited. Uh, I've also been working, let's see, so we're working on getting some birdhouses installed in the Field Museum's rice native gardens. That would be for uh, Martins. Working on other programming uh, that would accompany the uh, gardens as well this year. You know, in the, the, the pandemic time, it, it's actually been a, been a rewarding and an unexpected sense that, you know, a lot of us put years of work into getting the Field Museum to transform its, its own grounds. Uh, to better reflect what we feel is, you know, really the mission of a, you know, esteemed natural history museum. And it turns out that in a, a case like a pandemic, having, you know, this outdoor space that can be used for programming and tours is a, a real bonus. And so the whole institution, I think, has really kind of come around to this idea, which is great because it's it's been a, at least 10 years uh, kind of effort all in. Wow. Cool. So I also kind of consider you a sustainability officer at large. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, do you see yourself more contained by the institution of the Field Museum and the Chicago Recycling Coalition? Or do you see yourself as um, a, a freewheeling agent in that area? So I, I, I use the hats, you know, the hats seem to be an effective way of clarifying when I'm doing something. The Field Museum is a is a phenomenal place to work. It, it carries just so much weight here in the city of Chicago. You know, when you tell people that you're doing something with the Field Museum, it, it's like you're, you, you've suddenly like rolled into town on a red carpet in most cases. <laughs> Not always, but, but much, much of the time. And, and I do actually experiment with this. I'll send emails using sort of a personal Gmail account and they don't get answered, I send the same email with the Field Museum account and bam, I get an answer in like five minutes. It's amazing. <laughs> Great. Um, the Recycling Coalition is, you know, certainly a very different kind of world. We're, we're all, you know, it's a board, we're all volunteers. I, I know you're familiar with many of the members and uh, various officers we've had. Uh, the Recycling Coalition to me was an interesting fit because uh, Mike Novak, uh, past president had recruited me because he just found out I took uh, a field museum green team to visit a recycling murf because we were getting a lot of sort of uh, inquiries about whether the recycling was actually being recycled. And we said, you know what, we can talk about it all day, but why don't we just get off our butts and, go you know, go to this facility <laughs> and, you know, back of the yards and see what's actually happening. And sure enough, it was uh, an amazing eye opener. What, what we saw, this was probably in 2004, 2005, you know, we saw that technologically speaking, they were certainly capable of like sorting all of these uh, commingled, you know, single stream recycling kind of materials. But then, you know, we started to ask some questions and kind of probe and push a little bit. And what we were told was like, yeah, for sure, there's always a market for this. Again, this is 2004, 2005. So, you know, the markets are changing, of course. But the fellow, you know, he was very, very honest about it, or at least straightforward, it seemed. And he was just like, yeah, there's always a market for the aluminum and the metals, uh, cardboard, there's generally a market, paper, generally a market. And then he kind of like paused at that and we looked at him, we're like, plastic? Could you please tell <laughs> us about plastic? And he went, mm, he said, you know, we, he said, we would like to sell the plastic. He's like, honestly, there's just more of it than there's a market for. He's like, so, you know, then we will, we will give it to, you know, people that will reuse it. So, 
there's an industry that says, you know, they need this, you know, we're happy to just, you know, get it to them because we, we you know, do want this to be a, a recycling, you know, operation. And I said, and what if you can't find anybody that, you know, even wants to take it for free? You said, well, then, you know, we have to pay to, to dispose of it. And that's certainly not what we want to do. But, you know, he said, to be honest, this is quite often what happens. So I think that was, you know, for, for all the people that I was able to bring on this little field trip, you know, we were able to go back and look people straight in the eye and say, like, yeah, I mean, the, the system, you, you know, writ large, you know, it makes sense and it works. But when you start dialing into the specifics, there's definitely, you know, some cracks that, that you're seeing. And you're also seeing that maybe plastics didn't, I mean, this was 15 years ago. And already, you know, people were starting to be like, is this is this really kind of how recycling is supposed to work because even I think at its when it's working properly plastics are not endlessly recyclable you get I mean depending you know if you want to go with like academic papers or uh, people that are actually working boots on the ground so to speak I mean the, the highest estimate I've, I've ever seen is that plastics can be reused seven times but most of the folks that actually are in industries that are you know reusing the the nurdles as they call them uh, they say it's basically once. So your your plastic can be recycled one more time into something else, and then whatever that is, is what it's going to stay. So if it's a single-use plastic, it's going to stay, you know, basically trapped in a in a limbo of being unwanted and pushed into a landfill if we're lucky. And if we're unlucky, you know, it ends up in the natural environment where it breaks down, gets smaller and smaller and smaller to the point that we're all eating it, drinking it, all of these these terrible things. Um, ideally, you know, with with plastics, I think, and this is you know, this is really also a recycling coalition issue for sure. It's yeah, you know, we just want to stop using so much of it, especially when it doesn't seem to be necessary. Like you know, it's one thing to have plastics that are maybe being used by like hospitals, um, you know, where right. they have right. you know certain value in that in that environment. That I think we would all be like, you know, yes, of course, save save the patient kind of a thing. Um, the disposable fork that is going to be used for like, you know, literally five minutes and then will never be used again. I think we, we view that as a very different situation. And when you look at the trend lines for uh, plastic production, especially when weighed against uh, plastic recycling, which, you know, is just not really happening um, globally speaking, the, the problem is there's an increasing share of plastic production that is being dedicated toward uh, packaging, which is, you know, single use. And that's, that's a real problem. Um, it gets a little bit out of the few museums bailiwick, but on the other hand, I mean, I think that because we are a natural history museum and we do have archaeologists, I, I, I do get a little bit of currency by joking, you know, my, my job is to kind of put future archaeologists out of business. I would like there to be less yes. landfills, and that's what they do. They, you know, they go into garbage pits and landfills that are thousands of years old, and that's where you find the stuff and you learn how people lived. Uh, we'd like to change the way we're living so that we're not creating quite so many landfills. Oh, oh, oh.
size matters. Smith, Kyle, Seisman, Kowski. Should fit. All right. Hey there, Spiffy. What's the occasion? I got a wake to go to today. Oh, friend or family? See, he, uh, Jack O'Brien, 70 years old. Did you know this person? Well, not personally. So not at all? Well, yes, no, no. Why would you go to his funeral? Uh, read this. Yeah, it's very well written. Seems like the type of guy I might have paled around with at some point. I have a sneaking suspicion it's too late to form a friendship with Mr. O'Brien. Uh, listen, can I get a ride with you? I don't have a car. I know, but you got a bike. You are not borrowing my bike, dude. Nah, I, I can ride on your spokes. You can just borrow it. I don't know how to ride a bike. <sighs> Great. But I, tell you, I gotta teach you how to ride a bicycle. All right, how do I look? The suit is a little tight on you. Yeah, it's my shoeskies. Oh, excuse me. Hello. So sorry for your loss. Thanks. You must be the grandson. Yeah, yeah. Granddad was a great man. We used to get ripped all the time together. Yeah, wish I could have had one with him. No, you don't. Trust me. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. Don't mention it. Thanks again. Pardon me. Trout, this is Jessica, my biographer. Jessica, this is Trout. Hello. Uh, I have to assume you didn't know the deceased either? Correct. Uh, closed coffin. Make it look like you're praying. Ah. This is a nice casket. Jerry? Yeah, maybe Oak. Trout, use your hook, pop it open. Hold on, Kyle. Hold on. Let me figure out where the handle is. Wow. Look at this guy. Look at that. That's a nice Rolex. Damn shame they're going to bury him with it. See, Jessica, when you're as old as me and Trout, you got to consider how you want to be laid out. This is why we crash wakes. I see. Got to review your options. Well, he really does look smart, and that's yeah. such a nice watch. Did you see the old bit pick on this one? I brought it with me. Hold it up to his face. Come here, look at this comparison. This is very disrespectful. Tell me about it. He didn't look this good when he was alive. It's a little rude to tell him that. Hold up, didn't you say this guy had a Rolex? Hey, why is the coffin Somebody open? in the very near vicinity's got very fast hands. Who the hell opened the coffin? Look at that. Time to go. This week on the Biden Files, Biden's choice for the Office of Budget is shot down along with an increase in the minimum wage. Texas throws the doors open to disbelief in D.C. Trump recites a hit list at CPAC and declares, I'll win for a third time. The far right claim Trump will take power again this week. And Republicans signal they'll stonewall any policies Biden puts forth. These are the Biden Files. Day 38, February 26th. A minimum wage increase in the United States will not be in the rescue bill placed in Congress, as the Senate parliamentarian has ruled that Democrats cannot include a plan to increase the federal minimum wage as part of their rescue package under debate. Progressives had backed the provision, which would have gradually increased the wage in America to $15 an hour, but it fell afoul of what is known as the Bird Rule. That comes into play when measures are passed under budget reconciliation. Democrats are using that measure to avoid a filibuster. In response, Representative Ilan Omar called for the parliamentarian, Elizabeth McDonough, to be fired and replaced. Republicans did that in 2001 when the parliamentarian ruled against their plans. President Biden said he does not support overruling or firing McDonough. 
The House still voted to pass the relief package with the $15 minimum wage increase included and will now send that bill to the Senate. Biden has promised to support a standalone bill to raise the minimum wage to $15. It is unlikely, however, to get Republican support. A plan B is being floated that would penalize corporations that pay workers less than $15 an hour. It would impose an escalating tax on the payrolls of large corporations, starting at 5%, if any of the company's workers earned less than a certain hourly wage. It would also include safeguards to prevent companies from laying off workers and replacing them with contract employees to avoid that tax. The FDA voted unanimously to recommend Johnson & Johnson's single-shot coronavirus vaccine for emergency use. The J&J vaccine is the third one cleared for use in the United States, and while it is slightly less effective than the Pfizer and Moderna shots in clinical trials, it will be the first vaccine to require just one dose instead of two. It does not require low-temperature storage and is highly effective in preventing serious illness and hospitalization. The U.S. carried out an airstrike this morning targeting Iran-backed militias in Syria. The Pentagon said the strike was ordered in response to attacks against U.S. and coalition personnel in Iraq. The strike destroyed multiple facilities used by Iranian-backed Iraqi militant groups. In one of the first major international decisions of his tenure, President Biden won't hold Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman accountable for the assassination of American journalist Jamal Khashoggi. While the United States is preparing to levy sanctions against a group of Saudis implicated in that killing, Biden's national security team advised against bringing criminal charges or imposing travel sanctions that would bar MBS from entering the United States, claiming it would be, quote, too complicated. That decision led to outrage in D.C. as Biden had previously promised to punish Saudi Arabia's leadership for its role in Khashoggi's murder. But realpolitik interfered. The USA currently depends heavily on Saudi cooperation for counterterrorism support and the ongoing blockade of Iran. Rand Paul, during a confirmation hearing for a doctor who had become America's first transgender civil servant as the assistant director of health, assailed the nominee with a tirade that conflated genital mutilation with transition-related surgeries chosen by some transgender individuals. Dr. Rachel Levine, who is also Pennsylvania's top pediatric official, was remonstrated by Paul, who bizarrely claimed she had, quote, never been around children. That came one week after the House passed a groundbreaking and broad-based equality bill that would grant legal protections to LBGTQ plus people. Republicans delivered a series of odd speeches with Colorado's Lauren Babert claiming the bill would lead, quote, liberal indoctrination camps, also called colleges and universities, and instill radical ideology. She warned the left would imprison and take the children of anyone who disagreed with them. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene gave a similar speech and began trolling her colleagues after her across-the-hall neighbor Marie Newman put a transgender pride flag out of her office. Newman's own daughter is transgender. Greene retaliated by hanging a poster outside of her office reading, quote, There are two genders, male and female. Trust the science. And Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said he would absolutely support Trump as the 2024 Republican presidential nominee. McConnell had previously called Trump disgraceful and practically morally responsible for provoking a riot at the Capitol on January 6th. Day 39, February 27th. The House has passed President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, 219 to 212. That measure will provide $1,400 payments to millions of Americans, speed up vaccine distribution and testing, and extend unemployment aid through the summer. More than a dozen House Republicans skipped the vote, saying they couldn't attend, quote, due to the ongoing public health emergency. In a related story, all of the House Republicans who skipped that vote are listed as attendees at this week's CPAC conference in Orlando. 
The FBI has ID'd a prime suspect in the death of Brian Sicknick, a Capitol Police officer who was injured and later died after fending off a pro-Trump mob at the Capitol. Sicknick apparently died from the inhalation of an irritant such as mace or bear spray. The Justice Department also indicted six members of the far-right nationalist group, the Proud Boys, with conspiracy to obstruct the certification of President Biden's electoral victory and to attack law enforcement. The suspects were also accused of threatening a federal officer and entering the Capitol carrying a deadly or dangerous weapon. Images of the CPAC stage went viral this weekend as many noted a resemblance to the Odal or Atala rune that is a symbol emblazoned on some Nazi uniforms. The Anti-Defamation League has classified that insignia as a hate symbol that has been adopted by modern-day white supremacists. CPAC's organizers vehemently denied any link between the stage design and Nazi symbology, calling the criticism outrageous and slanderous. CPAC organizers were already under fire after they disinvited a scheduled speaker, social media figure Young Pharaoh, after he had tweeted that Judaism is a complete lie and made up for political gain, he also said Jews are thieving. And a golden statue of Trump in an American flag bathing suit was wheeled through the halls of the Conservative Political Action Conference. You can buy that for $100,000. Day 40, February 28th. An investigation into a private Wisconsin company owned by two top Republican donors in the U.S. found their workers face significantly higher rates of COVID infection. Those workers have also filed numerous complaints about workplace safety. Uline, which makes and sells shipping materials, saw 14% of Uline's corporate workforce test positive. That is compared to just under 9% of the population in Kenosha County, where the company's corporate office is located in Wisconsin. 19% of the company's Illinois workplace tested positive, 23% of its California-based workplace, and nearly 27% of its workforce in Texas. The U-Lines have spent $80 million to fund Republican candidates and causes in the 2020 election. Trump attacked Biden's tenure as president in his first public appearance since leaving office, calling it, quote, the most disastrous first month of any president in modern history. Trump spent 90 minutes reviving his false claims of election fraud and attacking the Supreme Court for not siding with them, saying, quote, the justices should be ashamed of themselves for what they've done to our country. They didn't have the guts or the courage to do anything about it. Trump said he is not going to start a new party, but said he will run again in 2024, saying, quote, who knows, I may even decide to beat them for a third time. Trump also named every Republican who supported his second impeachment and called for them to be ousted with special emphasis on Liz Cheney and Mitch McConnell. And Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, has been suspended from YouTube again for continuing to push falsehoods about the presidential election. YouTube also cited his apparent promotion of nicotine for the suspension. Day 41, March 1st. A Democratic attempt to include a de facto minimum wage increase in a $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill died in the Senate as they abandoned a potential amendment threatening tax increases on companies that refused to boost workers' pay to certain levels. Democrats instead will now unveil their version of the package and begin debate on Wednesday. Democrats have no votes to spare and likely will have to use Vice President Kamala Harris as a tiebreaker vote. Texas's top utilities regulator has resigned as the fallout from blackouts that left millions in the state without power and water continued. Deanne Walker, who is the chairwoman of the Public Utility Commission, became the highest ranking person in that state to step down. Republican Governor Greg Abbott has blamed the power failures on the state's grid manager, but in fact, a commission appointed by Abbott oversees the entire supply. Texas's grid is also uniquely isolated from the rest of the United States. It almost collapsed entirely on February 15th. 
Dr. Rochelle Valensky, the new director of the Centers for Disease Control Prevention, warned that a recent national uptick in coronavirus cases indicates another surge could occur. Valensky also cited two new variants causing concern, as well as warming temperatures in the U.S. One of those variants, the P1 Brazil variant, has now been found to cause reinfection in a worrying development. P1 also appears to blunt some vaccine effectiveness. So far, 7% of the country has been vaccinated. And Postmaster General Louis DeJoy awarded a 10-year contract worth $482 million to make new postal service trucks to a firm that offered to make gasoline-powered trucks that could be converted later to run on battery power. That decision runs counter to President Biden's recent mandate to replace the 645,000 federal vehicles with electric cars. It also hit a small, nascent electric truck maker that had hoped to win at least a portion of that contract. Day 42, March 2nd. In a startling move, Texas and Mississippi suddenly rescinded their statewide mask mandates and will allow businesses to reopen at full capacity starting next week. In a statement, Republican Greg Abbott claimed, quote, it is now time to open Texas 100%. Abbott cited a recent decrease in coronavirus hospitalizations to avoid previous state orders. Texas, however, is seeing 6,000 cases a day, but his moves echoed those in Massachusetts, where restaurants are now allowed to operate without limits, as well as South Carolina. The moves took national health officials off guard. Cases in the United States have not vanished. The U.S. is still averaging above 2,000 deaths a day. Most experts are urging caution for at least the next eight weeks. President Biden announced, however, that he had secured enough doses of the vaccine for the entire adult population in the U.S. by the end of May. That is one month earlier than previously predicted. The Biden administration sanctioned Russia over the poisoning of opposition leader Alexei Navalny, but did not specifically direct sanctions at President Vladimir Putin, that country's intelligence chiefs, or the oligarchs that support Russia's leader. President Biden is also expected to retaliate over the massive cyber hack perpetrated by Russia in the coming week. The White House abandoned its push to install Neera Tandon as the director of the budget office after senators in both parties opposed confirming her. Tandon was opposed by progressives for her ties to big business. Republicans had cited social media posts for their opposition. Tandon became Biden's first cabinet nominee to fall. Day 43, March 3rd. The U.S. Capitol Police informed Congress that there is a possible plot by militia groups to breach the U.S. Capitol tomorrow. QAnon-aligned extremist groups have been circulating plans for a so-called Day of Reckoning. They claim Trump will rise again to power on March 4th. March 4th was the original presidential inauguration day until 1933. President Biden and Democrats have agreed to tighten the income limits at which people could qualify for a new round of stimulus checks. That bows to Democratic Party moderates as the relief bill moves through the Senate. That bill will retain, however, the $400 weekly emergency jobless benefits that were included in the House-approved version of the legislation. The upper income limit for stimulus checks will now be set at $75,000 for individuals or $150,000 for a family of two. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said he hoped Republican senators would oppose the bill unanimously. That is an echo of the tactics the Republicans used against President Barack Obama. President Biden hit out the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, after Abbott eliminated COVID-19 restrictions, describing it as Neanderthal thinking and a big mistake. 
Citing the 6,000 cases a day currently occurring in Texas, Biden said it was critical for public officials to follow the guidance of doctors and public health officials. Biden also said he was asking states to make sure every school employee receives at least one vaccine shot by the end of this month. The House Oversight Committee has issued a subpoena to Trump's accounting firm for financial records. The committee first issued that subpoena to Mazars USA in April 2019, but the subpoena expired with the new Congress. The Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance enforced the subpoena for Trump's tax documents from Mazars last week and received those records. Former White House physician Dr. Ronnie Jackson reportedly drank and took the drug Ambien on the job and made sexually suggestive remarks to women on his team, according to a scathing 37-page report from the Department of Defense Inspector General. Multiple people described Jackson, who now serves in Congress, as a boss from hell who made life miserable for subordinates, including pounding on the door of a woman who worked for him in the middle of the night during a presidential trip while intoxicated, and engaging in problematic drinking while working as the top White House physician. The report said that Jackson, quote, expected rum or other alcohol to be stocked in his lodging room while on official travel. Staff members feared retribution if they did not comply with that expectation. Trump had nominated Jackson to lead the Veterans Affairs Department that was withdrawn after these allegations surfaced. Jackson accused the Inspector General of resurrecting, quote, false allegations because, quote, I have refused to turn my back on President Trump. Day 44, March 4th. Former Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao repeatedly used her office staff to help family members who run a shipping business with extensive ties to China. This according to a blistering new report from the Inspector General. The matter was so serious that the Inspector General referred the matter to the Justice Department in December for possible criminal charges. Two Justice Department divisions declined to do so. Ms. Chao is also the wife of Senator Mitch McConnell, who is the Republican leader. Major General William Walker told Congress he had National Guard troops at the ready for more than three hours on January 6th, but he waited for Trump's Defense Department to authorize their deployment. Walker told senators that the day prior, he had received a letter with the unusual restriction that he was first required to seek approval from the Secretary of Army and Defense before deploying any troops. Walker said that military leaders, including Michael Flynn's brother, told him deploying troops would, quote, not be good optics. Two senators introduced legislation that would repeal the 1991 and 2002 authorizations for the use of military force in the Middle East. Democratic Senator Tim Kaine and Republican Todd Young unveiled the measure after an Iraqi military base housing U.S. troops and civilian contractors was hit by rocket fire. At least 10 rockets were fired on an air base in Iraq where forces are stationed. That attack came one week after the U.S. military struck Iran-aligned militia targets in Syria in response to rocket attacks on American forces in the region. The New York City Bar Association is now investigating Rudy Giuliani, who is a member of that bar. Multiple complaints have apparently been sent to the Attorney Grievous Committee, alleging Giuliani has violated rules of conduct for attorneys by spreading lies about the 2020 election. The New York State Bar Association has the power to disbar Giuliani. 95% of CPAC attendees said the Republicans should continue to embrace Trump's policies. 68% of attendees said Trump should run again in 2024. Joe Biden's approval rating now stands at 51% nationwide, 42% of the country disapproves. Approval of Congress is at an all-time low, just 30% approve of the job lawmakers are doing. These are the Biden Files.
Chuck Mertz spoke to Peter Bloom and Carl Rhodes about their article, Beware Corporate Democracy Washing, from Common Dreams magazine. Bloom and Rhodes discuss how big tech has become a vanguard in the fight against the far right and why that is actually a dangerous thing. This is Hell airs every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. Is the only option in stopping privately backed censorship to deprivatize those kinds of communication platforms, making it a public asset, uh, nationalizing communications for it to fall under First Amendment free speech rights. Is that our only option? Well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, we've come so far with with uh, neoliberalism, the idea of, of nationalizing uh, uh, media or nationalizing public communication. I mean, it almost sounds like a kind of unrealistic utopia that uh, that's kind of fanciful. And I think that's probably less of an effect of what's possible and more of an effect of, of where we've come. I mean, uh, when, through nationalization or regulation of, of some kind, I mean, there is free speech, of course, as you say, in the U.S. constitutionally, but that doesn't allow you know, people who make movies to broadcast anything that they want. They're subject to... Uh, to rules and regulations designed by the public, uh, by public institutions, um, in terms of what, in terms of ratings, and in terms of, of what's permissible, but again, that's been largely eroded um, uh, through um, uh, through internet internet-based media. So some form of so regulation in some sense, but certainly questions of democratic questions of of what constitutes uh, free speech, and related to that. Well, you know, where is the border between free speech and inciting people to violence and, and hate speech? I mean, these have been debates recently happening around uh, around the world. But the point is, I mean, on the one hand, you know, you, me or anybody might have a particular position on what the answer should be. But I think the real question is no one person on account of... Uh, of their economic power, or no one institution on account of its economic power, should be making these uh, kind of decisions. They should be through some form of process of democratic deliberation um, uh, and, and reasoning. Um, and although democratic processes don't always come out with the right decision either, but that's kind of not the point. It's, it, it should not be, um, as we saw with Twitter, that financial might gives one the right to make a decisions of uh, who can and cannot say what. I mean, in a sense, it is, you know, as was just being said, uh, kind of cancel culture. And if you look at what happened with with Twitter, um, uh, they canceled Trump, quite literally canceling his account. This wasn't a, a metaphorical canceling. It was quite literal ca- canceling. Um, but on the other hand, you know, they've done pretty well out of him over the last four years with the, you know, God knows how many followers um, on his account. I think they saw the winds of change um, and they dumped yesterday's man. It was entirely, uh, it appears to be entirely a pragmatic uh, decision on their part. Certainly not uh, one that's driven by any uh, any sense of democratic principle, even though that's how how it was made uh, how it was made to appear. So again, we see private interests uh, taking over uh, dimensions of the public domain domain in which they really have no business at all. Dan Jugal created many of the sounds that make up Lumpen's musical identity, from our sting to our jingle to our underwriting, and so much more. 
Dan passed away unexpectedly in 2018. His widow, Marion Frost, has been cataloging his archive, and we are pleased to present for the first time a song he wrote for his band King Machine. This is the demo to Harpo Swoon. Thanks, Dan. We all miss you.
download complete. Now playing, Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity, imagine science. I think we do have a citizen science. Is that right, Erwin? Of course, of course. And this is a very, very fascinating one. Oh. That comes from an individual who is concerned um, or concerns themselves with the existence mm. of giants in ancient times. Giants? Yes. Uh, there is some very interesting, if not compelling, evidence I for think. sort of in geologic time scales prior there being several thousand foot tall uh trees and and mile large individuals chopping them down it's really quite interesting and and um i will admit uh, not the most compelling at all times but they bring up some very interesting points and this is one of those points sure so Through history, we are absorbing light and also combusting dense things into huge volumes of gases. We are building excess electrons in the atmosphere, causing global warming, and this is the reason everything has gotten smaller. Pressure. Courtesy of Mud Fossil University. So Um, the implication is that all the gas is pressing down on us and we are now smaller than we used to be yes yes uh that is under uh, pressure i believe that is the 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 uh coming down the statement being made here and i think it really is quite interesting and uh, i i think there is um a a germ of truth to this oh i i I think perhaps i i'm not one i am not an expert in this field um climate nor giants Mm. but if we were to presuppose that giants did exist, okay. If we make that that one small pre preassumption, and now there are no longer giants, then right. the question is begged: What happened to the giants? And frankly, um, excess pressure building in the atmosphere seems as good a reason for there to no longer be giants as any. So, th- so the idea is that we are the new giant. We are, we we are the we are the descendants of the giants. I'm once stomped around the earth. I'm saying that for the sake of an interesting thought experiment, there might be giants. Well, thank you for that, Rowan. Eureka Cast Now, broadcasting Saturdays, 8 to 9 p.m. on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.